Good morning. It's good to be here. I'm glad all of you are here uh, this morning. Normally my throat doesn't sound like I have a frog in it, but this morning it does. Uh, So you can be praying that it will uh, hold up. And if I have to put a cough drop in, I'm sorry. Our passage this morning is going to be from Luke 2, verses 21 to 35, which you notice that that follows right after the traditional Christmas story uh, that we read from Luke chapter 2 that runs through verse 20. So um, it's just a good time to kind of continue going on with the Christmas story that we probably all read uh, last year. So we'll be in Luke chapter 2 today. Uh, To begin, I would like to ask you to think about something. When was the last time Uh, that you were waiting on something that you felt like would never, ever arrive. Uh, Most of our youth in middle school are gone, but I imagine a bunch of them were waiting very recently on their Christmas vacation to get here, and it seemed like it would never get here. And then once it got here, they were waiting on Christmas morning to get here to see what presents they would have waiting on them under, under the tree. And maybe some of you now are waiting on the day you can retire, Um, Maybe there are others of you who are waiting on a wedding of of your own or uh, for your child or waiting on the birth of a child or waiting on a new grandbaby. Uh, Personally, uh, I'm waiting on December 5th, 2012, uh, the day I will finish at Beeson Divinity School and can get back to a normal or somewhat normal uh, life with my family. Um, Not that I'm counting, but if I was, it's about 388 days and 23 hours. (laughs) from right now, but who's counting? Um, And if you're not waiting on something right now, then I'll tell you, just wait. You will be waiting on something very soon. We're always waiting. Um, But in our text for this morning, we will see a story about a man who was also eagerly awaiting the arrival of a day that he was greatly anticipating. Uh, In this biblical story, uh, there's a man named Simeon who, according to the, the Bible, we'll see in our passage, he was a devout and righteous man, and he was eagerly anticipating the fulfillment of a promise that God had given to him and, and to his fellow Jews. And in this story, Simeon encounters the baby Jesus and his parents at the temple in Jerusalem, and he praises God with a song for having been faithful to keep the promise that he had given to Simeon and to the rest of the Jews. And Simeon goes so far in his song saying, God, now that you have have done what you told me, I am content to go now and to die in peace. You see, Simeon saw in Jesus what so many of his fellow Jews missed, namely that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the promised Savior of who the whole Old Testament was pointing to. He was the promised Savior who God said would come. But so many people missed it. And today, people continue to miss the truth about Jesus. People all over the world celebrate Christmas just as we have just done. But they miss the point of the baby who is lying in the manger. It's easy for us to come through the Christmas season and be reminded of the story about Jesus and his parents and the difficulty with which he was brought into the world and to feel sympathetic towards them. 
It's easy for us to feel pity for a poor family who was forced to bring their child into this world in a dwelling place that was meant for animals that probably smelled like a zoo. We sing the songs, we hear the stories, and it affects us emotionally, much like it would affect us when we hear a story about a family who is in need, who has children who are cold and hungry. It affects us emotionally. But friends, this type of emotional response to the Christmas story is not enough. Jesus demands more than just an emotional response to a sad story about a little baby. We cannot simply see Jesus as a sad little child who is brought into the world in unfortunate circumstances and feel sorry for him. And we can't simply admire him for overcoming these circumstances and and look at him as someone to imitate like we would imitate anyone who inspires us. None of that is sufficient. And in our passage for today, we'll look at Simeon's response to this baby Jesus, which is much different from the typical response that we often see at Christmas time. So I'm going to read now from our passage from Luke 2, verses 21 to 35. Please follow along with me. Luke 2, 21 to 35. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation or the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus in to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, and he blessed God and said, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. In the first four verses of our text today, verses 21 to 24, there are several different things going on. In verse 21, there's the circumcision and the naming of Jesus. In verses 22 to 24, we read about the purification ritual that was required of new Jewish mothers after giving birth. 
In these verses, we also read about Jesus being taken to the temple of Jerusalem and presented to the Lord and about his consecration or his dedication to God as the firstborn son in this Jewish family. And we could easily spend a great deal of time talking about each one of those events in particular this morning. But instead, I just want to say a few things about them and drive home the primary point, which is that, that Joseph and Mary were obedient to God and to the commands he had given them concerning their family. And they were, they were diligent to maintain the Lord's law. And if you take a quick glance at verses 22 to 24, you will notice just in those three verses, the word law is used three times. And Luke is trying to make clear to us by doing that, that the commands of God and being obedient to God was something that was important to Joseph and Mary, and they obeyed the commands. First, let's look at verse 21 and talk about the circumcision and the naming of the baby Jesus. Everything in this verse was, it was standard procedure for the birth of a new Jewish son. A week after their birth, they circumcised him and they gave him a name. The naming was probably more ceremonial than anything. We have no reason to think that back then it was any different than it is today. They probably knew, parents knew what they were going to name their son. And in Joseph and Mary's case, they definitely knew. It reminds us here that the angel Gabriel told them that they would have a son and they would name him Jesus. And since I'm trying to drive home the point that Joseph and Mary were diligent to be obedient to God's command, we see they did indeed obey and name him Jesus. And before I move on, let's, let's take some time to talk about the name Jesus. Names were important to Jewish families. We see this throughout the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. Children were often named to mark an occasion, or they were often named for some symbolic purpose. And in the case of this little boy, Jesus, there could be no more suitable name. The name Jesus in Greek is equivalent to the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. So as I said, there could be no more appropriate name for God incarnate who had come on a mission to save the world than the Lord saves. Jesus' name itself proclaims the gospel. And moving on to verses 22 to 24, we see three things taking place. First is this purification ritual that Mary would undergo. Actually, it was a process of purification that would have lasted about 40 days. And it would culminate, as we read in our passage, with a sacrifice offered at the temple. Verse 24 indicates that the sacrifice offered by Mary was either a pair of turtle doves or a pair of young pigeons. And this is significant because this type of a sacrifice of of these birds uh, was for people who could not afford the normal sacrifice of a lamb. So this is an indicator to us that what we've always been told that Mary and Joseph were were poor people is indeed true. They uh, They could not afford the sacrifice of a lamb that would normally be offered. It also indicates to us that the wise men had not yet visited them because when the wise men visited what was one of the gifts, it was gold. And had the wise men visited, they would have had gold and they would have been able to afford a lamb. But once again, there's nothing unique or special about this event. Mary was simply participating in a customary ritual for new Jewish mothers. And the second thing going on in verses 22 to 24 is the presentation of Jesus to the Lord. Now this wasn't necessarily 
absolutely normal like, like the other things we're going to look at. This was an act of acknowledgement by Joseph and Mary that Jesus belongs to God in a very special way and is set apart and called to a very special mission by God. This is a special offering of their newborn son by Joseph and Mary into God's service. They had heard what the angel Gabriel said about their son, what he would be, who he would become, and what he would do. And they acknowledged their belief by presenting him to the Lord in this way. This was an acknowledgement of a special call from God on Jesus' life. Now the third event, which is similar to this in verses 22 to 24, is found in verse 23. And in this verse, Luke is quoting from Exodus 13, which is a command to all firstborn sons uh, in Israel. They're to be consecrated or dedicated or set aside to the Lord. And so Jesus being the firstborn son in this Jewish family would have fallen under this commandment and they would have presented him uh, in this way as they were supposed to. The consecration of the firstborn son required Jewish families who were not of the tribe of Levi. Remember, Levi was the tribe where all the priests came out of. Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. So what what families would do with children who were not of the tribe of Levi is instead of setting aside their children to be pri- their sons to be priests, they would pay a five shekel of silver price to help support the priesthood. But again, this is, this is normal everyday procedure following the birth of a newborn son. There's nothing spectacular going on here. Okay, so as I said, we're done with all that. As I said, the main thing we need to take away from this set of verses is the commitment that Joseph and Mary had to being obedient to the commands and to the law of God. And, and this is particularly important as we see them doing it with their newborn son. It's not something that was just important for them in their lives. It was important that they they do this with their newborn son as well. Luke is aiming to drive this home to us. And if you look down quickly at verse 39, just outside of our text for this morning, you will see that it is only once that they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord that they are willing to depart from Jerusalem and return now back to their hometown of Nazareth. Obeying God was important this family. It was important to them that they obey the commands that God had given them concerning themselves as parents and concerning their newborn son. And in a similar way, we should be committed about obeying God in this area with our own families and with our own children. We too should be committed to obeying what the Lord has commanded us concerning our children and our grandchildren how are we doing in this area? If we are honest, most of the time we do a better job paying attention to our children's schoolwork, to their popularity, to their athletic endeavors than we do with their own spiritual walk with God. But friends, God has laid upon all of us as parents and grandparents the responsibility of making sure that our children are raised up to know God and come to place their faith in Christ. That is our responsibility as parents. But so often we let the distractions from the world around us not only be distractions to us, but distractions to our children as well. And having just come through the Christmas season, um, 
We know that this is so very true even at Christmas. We stop and think about it. If we're not careful, we can let many of the fun things associated with Christmas become distractions to the truth about Christmas. It's easy to get so caught up in the gift giving with Santa and now with the elves and their shelves that we sort of relegate Jesus to just sort of an add-on to Christmas. The emphasis is so often placed so much on the gifts and the giving and and what Santa is going to bring that we hardly mention the gift that God has given to us all. And so what was intended to be fun can become a distraction or even confusing to our children. And it can become a distraction from the gift of Jesus Christ himself. During the Christmas season, it's also common to hear very nice things said like, well, Christmas is all about family and Christmas is all about giving. But friends, that's not ultimately what Christmas is all about. Christmas is ultimately all about Jesus Christ. It is about God coming down and putting on flesh and living among us. It is about God's gift of himself to us. Christmas is only about family, and it's only about gift giving because Jesus himself is interested in family and interested in us showing love to others, which is sometimes done by giving gifts. But ultimately, Christmas is primarily about Jesus Christ. That is what is to be celebrated And that is what we are to teach our children. That is where our focus ought to be. Let us not be so distracted by all the other stuff that we miss the main point. Instead, we must try to be like this man, Simeon, who was so dialed into God and his law and his commandments and the promises that he are made that he had some type of supernatural Messiah radar on so that when Jesus and his parents come into the temple, he knows where he's at and he goes and he finds him. He's able to sniff them out and behold with his own eyes the promised Messiah, who he had been expecting, who he had been waiting to see. And we don't have much information about Simeon. Some say that he was a priest that was working in the temple and he was there as part of his job. Some say, no, he was just a devout worshiper. We have no way of knowing for sure. But the Bible does tell us some very specific facts about Simeon. And therefore, we can be sure about these things. And those are the things we will talk about this morning. The first thing we see about Simeon, beginning in verse 25, is that he lived in Jerusalem. And at this time, Jerusalem was under the control of the Roman government. And generally, really, the Roman government was pretty friendly toward the Jews. They let them sort of gather and worship as they wanted to. Um, But also, in many other ways, they were very oppressive. And so, many of the Jewish people in this day uh, were looking for a Messiah who would come. But the type of Messiah they were looking for was along the lines of a political Messiah, someone who would free them from the Roman oppression against them. And so when this humble, meek, and mild baby is born in this rather unusual way, he gets crowded out by their expectations of what the Messiah should be. They're so distracted by the things that they want and expect in a Messiah And by the things that are going on around them, they are not able to see Jesus as the true Messiah. 
And as we've already said, much in the same way today, people are still distracted from seeing Jesus as the Messiah. They're looking for a Jesus who meets their own criteria. But Simeon is different. We see in verse 25 that Simeon was righteous and devout. But what was it about Simeon that made him righteous and devout? Why was Luke able to call Simeon righteous? It was the same thing that made Abraham righteous. It's the same thing that makes any of us righteous. Remember Genesis 15, 6 tells us that Abraham believed God and and God counted his belief as righteousness. Well, Simeon believed God's promise to bring comfort to Israel in the form of a savior. And Simeon was waiting expectantly for it to come about. Excuse me. So it's Simeon's belief in this promise of God that God had counted righteousness on Simeon's behalf. It was his belief, just like it was Abraham's belief. Just as it is our belief that counts us righteous, it was Simeon's belief that God would bring about what he had promised. And when we believe that Jesus is the Savior, and when we quit trying to earn our own righteous standing before God and place our trust totally in him, then God too counts us as righteous. And friends, this is good news. This is the gospel message that because of what Jesus did, not because of what I have done or will do or will try to do, God counts me as righteous. And because Simeon believed these things about God, not only was he given a righteous status before God, not only was he declared righteous by God, but Simeon now sought to live a devout life. We also see this in verse 25, that he was devout. This reverent and devout behavior, though, it did not make him righteous. It was evidence of his righteousness. And unlike the Pharisees of the day who Jesus would later call whitewashed tombs because they looked so good on the outside, but on the inside they were filled with death. Simeon was not like that. Simeon was righteous and it overflowed to the outside so that he lived a devout and holy life before God and before his people. Sometimes when we read about the sacrifices and the rituals described in the Old Testament, and things like this purification period of 40 days culminating in the sacrifice, it can be confusing to us. And sometimes we even think that, that in the Old Testament there was one system of salvation, that today in the New Testament we have a different system of salvation. In the Old Testament they obeyed all these laws and did all these rituals and performed all these sacrifices, and that's how people in the Old Testament were saved. But friends, that is not how people in the Old Testament were saved. No one has ever been saved by the things they have done. Salvation has always been by faith. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. The sacrifices and the rituals and the ceremonies of the Old Testament always point the people of God to Jesus Christ, to the Lamb who was coming. When we try to read the Bible apart from Jesus Christ, it can become very confusing to us. When we read the Bible, we must always read it with Jesus Christ at the forefront of our minds or or, or we will lose our way and become confused. In the Old Testament, Christ is anticipated and in the New Testament, Christ is revealed. And so if we're going to understand the Old Testament and its system of sacrifices, we must read it 
with Jesus in mind. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament, it it was reminding people that the wages of sin is death. To take away sin, there had to be this messy shedding of blood performed at your hands. And we're so far separated from that type of thing. We, We lose the seriousness of our sin. We don't see it the way they saw it. We're 2,000 years separated from the last sacrifice that had any implication upon us. And we forget that blood had to be shed on my behalf. It taught them to look for a lamb who would come. A promised lamb who would come. And this promised lamb who would come, this promised savior who would come, was the one that Simeon was anticipating. It was the one he was waiting to see. The lamb would be the instrument of of God's consolation or, or his comfort. It would be how God comforted or consoled his people. And so, it, again, it was Simeon's faith. It was Abraham's faith. It was always the faith of the righteous remnant of Israel that brought about their salvation. Faith in this lamb who would come and pay the price for their sins. It was not in the sacrifices. It was their faith. Abraham believed God's promise to give him a son, even when by human standards, the idea of a man who's 100 and a wife who's 90 having a son seems ridiculous. Abraham believed it. And then later on, when Abraham was told by God to take this son he'd waited on for so long and place him on an altar and kill him, Abraham believed that God would provide a lamb. And the faithful remnant of Israel has always believed that God would provide a lamb. And that is who Simeon was waiting on. He was waiting on the lamb who would restore Israel. He was waiting on the lamb who would comfort and console Israel and set them back in right relationship with God. Simeon believed that God would intervene in history and he would change the fate of Israel. And in the last part of verse 25 and end of verse 26, we see that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had indeed seen this one who was to come. He would not indeed die until he had seen the consolation of Israel come to fruition in the arrival of the Lord's Messiah or the Lord's Christ. And in verse 27, we see that it is the same Holy Spirit who led him into the temple and orchestrated this divine encounter with Joseph and Mary who were carrying this consolation of Israel in their arms. And when Simeon sees the child, the Holy Spirit sees to it that Simeon looks on this child and knows that this is the one who he has been waiting on. He knows this baby is the consolation. He knows this is the Lord's Christ. And in verse 28, when Simeon sees Jesus, he picks the baby up into his arms and he praises God and acknowledges that God has fulfilled the promise made to him by the Holy Spirit. In verse 29, Simeon begins a song of praise to God saying, Lord, now I am able to die in peace because of the promise you have made to me has been fulfilled. I have seen your salvation with my own two eyes and now I am ready and willing to die in peace. And just like with Simeon, it's always the Holy Spirit of God who ushers us into the presence of Jesus Christ and enables us to see him for who he truly is. 
to see him as God's salvation and believe it. It is the Holy Spirit who enables us to see him, not as this little baby laying in a manger, or not as a madman who was killed on the cross, but as our Savior. It is the Holy Spirit who enables us to see that. Without the Spirit of God, we will never believe that. Just like he led Simeon to the temple to encounter God in the flesh of this little baby and to see him and recognize him as God's salvation, the Holy Spirit brings us into the presence of Jesus Christ and enables us to see him for who he truly is. And so I would ask you now, has the Holy Spirit led you here this morning to encounter Jesus? To see Jesus as God's salvation? Has he led you here? Has he impressed the truth of the gospel upon you? Has he been upon you this week and this morning leading and guiding you to this moment where you might see Jesus as God's salvation? Is he stirring up faith in you now to believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah? That Jesus is indeed the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. If so, stop now and believe. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Stop now and believe. Do not quench the Spirit. What Simeon sees Jesus, when Simeon sees Jesus, he believes that this baby is indeed the salvation of God that has been promised to him, that he would see. So, so uh, he knows that Jesus, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, is the consolation of Israel. He knows that he is the fulfillment of the promises of God. And so Simeon rejoices in this, and he praises God with this short little song. And thankfully, God let Simeon finish the song. I suspect that if God wanted to, he could have taken Simeon from the world right then and there because the promise had been fulfilled, but he didn't. He lets him finish his song. And we don't know how much longer Simeon lived. But assuming he departed this world shortly after, these words become even more important to us because they're some of his last. In the closing verses of this short song, in verses 31 and 32, Simeon makes it clear something that is very important for us today. That this baby is not only given to the Jews, but it's given to the Gentiles as well. Simeon explains that Jesus is a light intended to reveal God to the Gentiles, to all the nations and all the people groups around the world. He is the Savior of the whole world. And so the good news just keeps getting better. If Jesus was only the Savior of the Jews, that would, mean, that would be no good to me. It would be no good to the vast majority of you. But Jesus is the agent of God's promised salvation to the whole world. Just like the star that was over his house that eventually drew the Gentile wise men from afar, Jesus is a bright shining star drawing all the peoples of the world to him now to come and to be saved. And if we believe this is true, if we as Christian men and women and boys and girls believe this is true, then we cannot sit here while there are billions of people around the world who have not heard Jesus and are facing death. We've seen some of Simeon's final words this morning, but Jesus too had some final words before he departed. In Matthew 28, Jesus tells us to go to make disciples of all the nations. And in Acts 1.8, Jesus says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, but not just in Jerusalem, to the ends of the earth. 
How are we doing at that? I'm not doing very good at it. I enjoy my church. I enjoy hanging out with all of you. But most of the time, I'm pretty content to do just that. But that is not living the life that Jesus has called me to. It is not living the life that Jesus has called you to. Friends, we can sit here and we can love all over one another. But while we do so, there are people dying and going to hell because we refuse to obey the commands of God. And one day we will answer to God for that. Friends, we have the responsibility to make Jesus known to those around us and those around the world. It's not our responsibility to make them believe. We've already seen that. It's the responsibility of the Holy Spirit. But we do have the responsibility to make him known, to shine a light on him. Like Simeon, we need to take hold of this baby and we need to lift him up to people and say, Behold, this is your Savior. This is the salvation of God. But even so, not all will believe. And in the closing verses of these, this passage, Simeon tells us some very sobering truths. We see in verse 33 that Simeon stops and he blesses the family, but then he turns directly and speaks to Mary. He says to her, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and to be a sign that is opposed. And a sword, Mary, will pierce through your own heart also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. In other words, Mary, this sweet little baby that you're holding in your arms will bring about judgment to those who reject him and salvation to those who receive him. He's been sent as a sign from God, but many will reject him, Mary. Many will oppose him. Mary, they will eventually kill him. And you will be a witness to this, and it will bring you untold sorrow. But those, Mary, who reject him will be judged. And for in doing so, the true intentions of their hearts will be revealed, and their relationship with God will be made known. Friends, we all have a decision to make about this Jesus. This is one decision we cannot be neutral on. Either you believe he is the Son of God who came to earth, being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Either you believe that he was killed on the cross and placed in a tomb, dead for three days, and on the third day he rose from the grave. Either you believe these things or you don't. Either you oppose him and reject him or you receive him as the Savior and you receive eternal life. Either you acknowledge that on your own you stand hopelessly before a God who knows the thoughts of your heart or you collapse in submission before Jesus who has stood in your place before God and has taken your condemnation. Where do you stand this morning? This Jesus who came to earth 2,000 years ago as a meek and mild baby has promised that he will return 
again. We have just commemorated and celebrated his first advent, but one day we will celebrate his second advent. And that's what we're looking forward to as Christians, his second coming. Like Simeon, those who are now part of this faithful remnant of believers are able to spend their time in longing anticipation for the return of their Savior and their King. But for those who have rejected him, the day of his return is not something to be anticipated, but only something to be dreaded and feared. The Bible tells us that the next time Jesus returns, he will return in an entirely different manner. This time he will return as a victorious and conquering king. A king who will judge his enemies and rescue his people. He left this world as a silent lamb. But he will return as a roaring lion. And depending on where you stand, this will either be a day of great rejoicing or it will be a day of terrible anguish. So I ask again, where do you stand When you look to Jesus, what do you see? Are you among those who are anxiously awaiting his return? Or do you stand among those who can only dread the day that the sky is torn in two and a mighty king returns who knows all the thoughts of our hearts and knows that we have rejected him? Where do you you stand? I plead with you this morning to believe. Believe the truth about Jesus. Don't harden your heart today. January 1st, 2012 is the day to believe. Again, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And as a church, let's make 2012 a year where we commit ourselves to sharing this good news about this baby who came and who was promised to come again. Let's give hope to those around us who are waiting to see a Savior. Let's pray. Father, so often we do not see Jesus as we should. Forgive us, Father, and grant to us an increased measure of faith. Help our unbelief, Father. Father, and if there is one here this morning who has yet to believe the truth about Jesus, who has yet to see him as the Savior of the world, I pray that this morning your Holy Spirit will move them to believe. I pray that they will stop now and believe. And Father, I pray that you will give us as members of this church an unquenchable passion this morning for taking this good news to the ends of the earth. Give us a passion for seeing the great commission fulfilled. Make us a people on mission for you, God. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a decision you would like to make public this morning. Brother James will be down front to receive you.